Welcome back to Meet Kevin Report number 42. A lot to talk about today, including what's going on with a little bit of an update on Federal Reserve, large update on Ukraine. We'll also talk about real estate, and we'll talk about Trump's speech at CPAC, and we'll see what else we can cover given the time that we end up having. So let's get into that. Oh, we'll also talk forecasts today, so that'll be pretty important for the next few weeks. So we'll take a look at that uh, very important month coming up here. So uh, let's jump first into this. Uh, I'd, I'd like to react to a now this piece from Katie Por uh, Porter. So let's jump into this. Here we go. This is a pretty trending TikTok from Katie Porter, basically telling Jamie Dimon, the CEO of Chase, JP Morgan and Chase, that a woman who has a six-year-old child can't survive while working at Chase and asks for his advice on what she should do. While Jamie Dimon doesn't answer, I have some suggestions. Let's get started and play this first. And $31 million a year in salary, and you can't figure out how to make up a $567 a month shortfall. This is a budget problem you cannot solve. You're an expert on financial statements, and you run a $2.6 trillion bank. I know you're good at numbers, and you've shared lots of opinions recently about how the U.S. should budget its resources, how families should budget their resources, and so I'd like to ask for your help on a problem. I went to Monster.com and I found a job in my hometown of Irvine at J.P. Morgan Chase. It pays $16.50 an hour, um, and so I wondered if I could, um, if you'd indulge me. Um, when you do the math on this and you do the $16.50 out at 40 hours a week for 52 weeks a year, it comes out to an income of $35,070. Now this bank teller, her name is Patricia. She has one child who's six years old. She claims the one dependent after tax. She has $29,100. We divide that by 12. She rents a one-bedroom apartment. She and her daughter sleep together in the same room. In Irvine, California, that average one-bedroom apartment is going to be $1,600. She spends $100 on utilities, take away the $1,700, and she has net $725. She's like me. She drives a 2008 minivan and has gas. $400 for car expenses and gas, net $325. The Department of Agriculture says a low-cost food budget, that is ramen noodles, a low food budget is $400. That leaves her $77 in the red. She has a Cricut cell phone, the cheapest cell phone she can get for $40. She's in the red, $117 a month. She has after-school child care because the bank is open during normal business hours. That's $450 a month. That takes her down to negative $567 per month. My question for you, Mr. Diamond, is how should she manage this budget shortfall while she's working full-time at your bank? I don't know. I have to think about that. Would you recommend that she take out a J.P. Morgan Chase credit card and run a deficit? I don't know. I'd have to think about it. Would you recommend that she overdraft at your bank and be charged overdraft fees? I don't know. I'd have to think about it. So I know you have a lot of... Anyway, so she goes back and forth and asks multiple times, what about this, what about that? And he said, basically says, hey, you know, I'd have to think about it. But I did some thinking about it, and I have some opinions on this. First of all, and it's always touchy, okay? I'm just blunt on the channel. It's always touchy. If you're a single mom, you're in a very difficult position. If you have not yet really figured out how to make more money than $16.50 uh, an hour by the time you have a child. That's probably the first mistake here. Now, I know that mistake is in the past, so I'm not going to spend most of the time on this, but let's make it very clear. If you are a woman, the best case scenario is before you have a child, make more money than $16.50 an hour. That's probably priority number one, is make sure you're not reliant on anyone else, whether that's a man, another woman, Mom, dad, I don't care who it is. Make sure you're self-reliant yourself before you have a child. That is mission critical number one. Do not rely on anyone else, the government or anyone. That is number one. 
Number two, if you're making $16.50 an hour at Chase in Irvine, you're probably not getting the most income that you could. You're probably able, like this, in the snap of a finger, able to go from $16.50 an hour to potentially 40 or 50% more pay working for Amazon making $22 to $24 an hour with no necessary additional skill set than what you already have at JP Morgan. So in this scenario, you're really putting somebody in a very expensive area in Southern California who has a six-year-old child and they're already not getting potentially the best job available to them with no additional education or training. Now, the next thing that this individual should do is they have to realize if your paycheck to paycheck are potentially negative in this scenario, when they went through sort of a budget, the person's negative $500 a month for basic costs like, uh, you know, uh, essentially housing, uh, food, childcare, whatever. Somebody like this in this situation who has gotten them in a place where they have a six-year-old child and they're only able to make 16 to maybe $24 an hour, they're going to have to work more than eight hours a day. And of course, this is not even including the fact that they have a child to take care of, but you're going to have to unfortunately burn the candle at both ends of the stick. Now that's a hard thing to say. You could just pick up and try to move to a lower cost of living area, but that's not necessarily going to get you ahead. That might just sink you back into essentially just compressing yourself into more of an area of poverty. And when poverty concentrates, you end up getting worse schooling for your child. And that's not what you wanna set your child up for. You wanna set yourself and your child up for the best odds of success. So one of the best things this individual could do is start looking into home education programs where they can maybe learn uh, how to get a nursing degree working before they go to work in the morning or when their child's asleep at night. That should be the priority. In fact, a lot of nursing school programs only require you go to school actually in person once to twice a week now because so much can be done at home at your own pace. Now all of a sudden you could potentially go from not just making $16.50 an hour or even $22, $23, $24 an hour working at let's say Amazon, but you could actually go to making $50 an hour when you actually get a professional certification like becoming a registered nurse. So when Katie Porter asks one of the richest people in the world, hey, how can a person making $16.50 at your bank actually get ahead? She's actually not asking the right question. It is not Jamie Dimon's responsibility to offer a job that creates value of potentially even less than $16.50 for the bank to somebody that can cover all of their expenses when they set themselves up and put themselves unfortunately into a situation that is not conducive with actually being able to survive in America, whether it's the location they're in or the decisions they made prior to getting into that situation. But it is now incumbent upon that person themselves to get themselves out of that situation. Now, some people say, hey, that's not fair. And look, that is the capitalistic structure that America is based off of. Now, fortunately, and this is the fortunate part, Fortunately, even though we are a country of capitalistic rules and ideals, we do have a social safety net. And this is the next thing that the individual should consider. Somebody on this sort of income would easily, especially in Southern California, qualify for Section 8 subsidized housing, which means they could potentially get almost all of their rent covered. Now they have more money to make sure they can educate themselves. Rather than paying $1,600 a month in rent, maybe they could pay $1,000 less a month in rent and only pay about 
$600 a month in rent. Now there are waiting lists for section eight, so that is problematic. And that's where you can also make sure that you're getting your food at charity banks. There are, uh, in, in almost every single county I've been in, there are local Christian or Jewish community centers that regularly give food away to anybody who wants it. This is healthy stuff that you could eat at home. They also sell very inexpensive clothing. It's phenomenal. There are some really great uh, ways you could buy clothing uh, and, and food by making sure you're taking advantage of the resources your community and nonprofits give. And the next thing to realize is some people are going to say, oh, but wait, Kevin, education is expensive. Well, look, if you want to counter every single argument that I'm making, you're probably putting your head in the sand rather than realizing there are ways to solve every problem. Problems create solutions. And guess what? Or problems can get solved with solutions, obviously, and it's your job to create those solutions. And so if you stick your head in the sand, you're always going to be stuck with problems. But if you look at problems and say, hey, the more problems I can solve, the more I get paid, then you can get through this. In fact, one of the common things that people will do is they will look at, all right, hey, what can I do to get my education subsidized by going to local community colleges or universities and seeing if they have any programs for people in my situation? And the odds are they do. So almost every single objection that exists can be overcome by a solution in America. And we haven't even talked about the fact that you could also get Medicaid uh, when your income is below a certain level within a region, especially in Irvine, you're certainly within a, a percentage of the level of poverty. In fact, I would argue you're below the poverty line uh, for a two person household. So there are so many important things to consider when it comes to America that I understand that when we take this one person's $16.50 income with a child out of context, we really Realize there are a lot of things that happen, or we have to realize there are a lot of problems that happened before, and then there are now problems that are happening today in this sort of fictitious example. But that fictitious example is probably real and it does happen. It's not going to be easy to get out of that hole, but the good news is it's possible. So that's my take on uh, Katie Porter's video. Probably not going to be the most popular, but then again, I'm coming at it from the angle of uh, somebody in, in, the, uh, in, in the finance space and thinking to myself, well, if Jamie Dimon doesn't want to give answers because it would be unpopular to say, well, leave Chase, uh, right? Or, or he doesn't want to give any kind of unpopular answer. I'm willing to make that argument because A, look, 20% of people might yell at me and go, man, you, you don't even know what it's like, which is not true because I grew up on minimum wage, <laughs> nearly going through bankruptcy and foreclosure with my parents and I had to bootstrap myself. But beyond that, and look, everybody's got their privileges, okay? Everybody's got advantages and disadvantages. But the point is, we just have to have real talk to be able to get through hard situations. And if somebody is in that kind of situation and they would rather talk about how what I described is not possible or how it's not fair that other people had advantages, well then guess what? If that's the mindset somebody has, then they deserve the card they're dealt. If the mindset of somebody who is in a tough situation is, ah, oh, well, everybody else is just privileged, you know, I'm not smart enough to go to school. Well, then that's your problem. And ultimately, when you point a finger, three point back at yourself. So it's important to keep that in mind. When you look at this from a financial, remember, I'm a licensed financial advisor. And this isn't personalized financial advice, obviously, because I don't know all of your situation or that person's situation or whatever. That person doesn't even exist that Katie Porter talked about. But when we're actually real about financial guidance or advice, we could see there are real ways to solve problems. That is the point of America. Problem, find solution, then get paid.
Alrighty then. Uh, somebody just donated $4.99. I'm a high school graduate with no degrees, and I drive a truck for a living and make over 100 grand a year. There are no excuses. Hot damn! Look at that take. <laughs> wow. Dude, over 100 grand. That's amazing. Congratulations. Alright. What do we got next? So, oh, we gotta do forecasts. Oh, this is gonna be fun. Uh, side gig in real estate and lending. There you go. Yeah, all right. So we got to do forecasts. Here we go. Now we got to talk economic forecasts, and we got to watch these forecasts before the dates actually come up so you're prepared and you realize what the expectations are. Now, look, even Bloomberg is complaining about the fact that holy smokes, estimates and forecasts are probably going to be a little wild here. That's because we're coming off of seasonal adjustment month. And you know what seasonal adjustment month means, right? Well, look at this, okay? So before we get into some of the actual forecast data, which you wanna write down, it's important to understand what the hell happened in January. And Barron's put together a phenomenal piece. This is a screenshot from their piece, it's not the whole thing, but this is a phenomenal piece right here that just gives you a quick little outline of some of the insanity uh, that happened uh, in the data from January, which was essentially shown to us in February, which led the stock market to have a little bit of a heart attack and a 10-year treasury yields to skyrocket near and above 4%. So what do we have over here? Payrolls, the first tough report we got, payrolls actually declined by 2.5 million jobs per month. However, the seasonal adjustment for January was we were expecting a loss of 3 million jobs. As a result, we had about a 500,000 jobs blowout. So think about that. Only in America can you literally lose 3 million jobs and then have the Bureau of Labor Statistics tell you, holy crap, we added 500,000 jobs. <laughs> it's because their assumption was we would lose 3 million and we only lost 2.5. Good Lord, how do we trust this sort of noisy data? Uh, then, what do we have here? The average work week, it says, jumped. Oh no, it jumped to 34.7 hours, which potentially implies that wage earners have pricing power, right? PP, and that's ne not necessarily the best case scenario because even though we want people to get paid more overtime, we don't want them to get paid so much more that all of a sudden we have an inflationary spiral, right? So when the average work week jumps, that seems scary, right? Especially since it jumped from 34.7 to 34.4. Good Lord, I'd love to only work 34 hours a week. I think I work about 80 to 90 hours a week. But anyway, that artifact was thanks much to warmer than average temperatures in much of the United States, which resulted in fewer hours lost due to bad weather in a typical January. Oh, good Lord. Okay, what about that 3% jump in retail sales? I mean, that the January data was terrible, right? We had a 3% jump in retail sales data. After all, that was two-thirds greater than the consensus forecast. How are you going to explain that one away? Oh, well, uh, as Morgan Stanley's economics team here writes via Barron's, January sales typically decline by 20% after the December holiday frenzy with this January sales only falling 16.2%, there was an outsized boost to the seasonal adjustment figures. In other words, 
Well, what about the hot retail sales data? Yes, well, usually in a typical December sales, uh, uh, December to January, sales in January drop 20%. Duh, it's not Christmas anymore. It's only Kevin's birthday. And Kevin don't get that many gifts. <laughs> it's okay, I don't need gifts. But anyway, uh, with this January's sales falling only 16.2%, we got a positive retail sales read. So wait a minute. Retail sales can literally fall 16.2%, and our government's going to tell us plus 3%. Yes. Now, we can understand this. I'm not saying seasonal adjustments are wrong, right? We try to smooth out the insanity of the year. But the point is, this January was pretty freaking weird. Not only was the weather very different, but you also have a lot of pandemic labor hoarding. Hoarding? Oh my lord. Uh, you have a lot of pandemic labor hoarding. That is people who hired people seasonally for, for the uh, you know holiday season. Uh, all of a sudden don't want to let go of employees because it's been so hard to hire people during the pandemic. We're all a little shell-shocked. Uh, here's another one. The report showed a 17.7% increase in light motor vehicle sales, but unadjusted light truck sales were actually down 18.6%. You know, it's just annoying that when we look at this data, the actual data is just a massive negative. But then when the seasonal adjustment comes in, it's a massive positive. And again, we're trying our best, and that's why these seasonal adjustments are done, to compare 2023 to other normal years. But I want to ask you, how normal does January of 2023 feel compared to other quote-unquote normal years? Probably not very normal. So now we got to look at forecasts because the forecasts... Yeah, uh, <laughs> they're not that great. Uh, ooh, uh, it is also worth uh, noting, um, you know, the Wall Street Journal on sort of this topic of, of labor hoarding. I was reading this yesterday in the plane, and I thought this was actually a really, really good piece right here. This was a phenomenal one. It's super short. So let me hit this really quick, and then we'll do the forecast. So the Federal Reserve's efforts to slow the American economy doesn't appear to be working. People like to say it's pushing against a string. It's kind of a good analogy. And so they're, they're talking about, look, the Fed is trying to slow down the economy, right? But we're getting that hot data we got in January, which we kind of just threw some you know, salt on, basically. Uh, and then over here, what are we actually kind of seeing going on in the economy? Well, I thought this was interesting. Card swipe data from the security firm Castle Systems. It's basically a company that makes sure that only people who actually work at a company can get into a company office building. Think about it like key cards, badge cards, right? They say that office occupancy is around 50% for the week ending Feb 22. And while that's an improvement from a year earlier uh, of 40%, we used to be around 100% before the pandemic. So you have to think about that. Like things are really, really different. How do you seasonally adjust things compared to the last decade when office occupancy is half of what it previously was? How about going to the movies? Well, they say here, that going to the movies brought in about $1.08 billion, according to Box Office Mojo. Better than what we had last year for the first two months of the year, but well short of the $1.54 billion we had in the first two months of 2020 before the pandemic. So in other words, somehow movie chains are basically down 40 to 50%. Yet we're still supposed to somehow make seasonal adjustments compared to the last decade. It's, it doesn't make any sense, right? And, and, and the Wall Street Journal here says, look, this is happening everywhere. Visiting amusement parks, outpatient surgery. You're seeing more frequency than last year, but still way less than what you saw pre-pandemic. 
For example, they say, they give sort of an example, I don't know about this, but more men might be keep, uh, might keep wearing their long hair, but barber visits will probably pick up anywhere. Healthcare employment finally got back to pre-pandemic levels, but it's probably below where it would have been otherwise. Now, this is actually a really interesting argument they make here, and it's best to visualize it. So if I draw it out, it'll make a little bit more sense. But basically, think about healthcare employment uh, sort of hitting like a little low because of uh, you know people getting laid off for elective surgeries or whatever, and then sort of rebounding. Well, we might be back at the same level where we were before the pandemic at, at, at now, but the problem is usually we actually grow the healthcare industry because people are, 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 you know, aging. So we should be here in sort of the green line, which is substantially higher than where we were, but we're not. We're just back to levels where we were in healthcare in 2019. Let me read that to you. If the healthcare sector had added jobs at the same pace following the onset of the pandemic as it had over the previous 20 years, its payroll count in January would have totaled nearly 900,000 jobs higher. Well, how's that gonna show up in the jobs data? You know, if we actually just went back to typical healthcare trend, we'd be adding 900,000 jobs? Yeah, even if you divide that over a year, that's like adding another 80,000 jobs a month just to get back to trend. That's not even keeping up with the trend. It's insane. So of course, when you do the seasonal adjustments, it's like, dude, how the hell are those supposed to be accurate? Now, of course, all of this unfortunately contributes to the idea that, well, it's gonna be hard for the Fed to slow things down because we kind of are trying to get back to the old school trend growth, right? And so that does kind of imply higher rates for longer, but this isn't a higher rates for longer video, even though that's exactly what Mary Daly and basically everybody at the Fed is saying, it's gonna be higher for longer, whatever, whatever. This is a video on forecasts. And we gotta make sure we talk about those forecasts because as much as I hate to say it, the forecasts are going to be very important for the stock market. I don't care how many times, like on screen now, Bloomberg tells you that around the time of spikes or troughs, the forecast data is really bumpy and lumpy. In other words, it's really easy to predict and forecast when we're in these sort of tight bands over here. Really, really easy to do. The yellow bands, by the way, are estimates. So the yellow bands show you estimates. And then the little dots uh, show you the forecast or the historical. So basically, the white dots are what actually happened and the yellow bands were the forecast. But every time we get around these sort of curves, you end up finding that, that basically uh, you get this, these potential uh, outliers in data. I mean, look for example, all over here on the right side, what you'll find is you have all of these estimates at various different levels. And all of the estimates, vast, the vast majority of them tend to be wrong. Uh, because we get some kind of crazy outlier or whatever as a result. So keep that in mind when we look at the, uh, the numbers that we are expecting here. So what do we have for Catalyst? Well, the first thing that we have is on, uh, uh, I mean, we've got some factory orders for the beginning of uh, the week. On the 6th, we're going to get factory orders at 10 a.m. Eastern time. We're expecting those factory orders to come in at negative 1.8%, excluding transportation, positive 1% whatever. Uh, whole, we got wholesale trade uh, figures coming in expected to be negative for both sales month over month by negative 0.5. Inventory is negative 0.4. Fine, whatever. What's going to matter more? Well, probably the ADP report. So the prior ADP report came in with 106,000 private jobs created. The ADP report, which is sort of our private estimate of what's going on in the jobs market, is expected to come in at 200,000. That's going to be important. Pay attention to the ADP report. We'll also be paying attention that ADP report comes out on the 8th, that's Wednesday, and the ADP report comes in at 8.15 
Eastern Time. Then on the 8th at uh, uh, 10 a.m. Eastern Time, we're going to get the JOLTS report. That's the Job Openings and Labor Turnover Report. Very important. That Job Openings Report is expected to show 10,584,000 jobs. That is going to be less than the prior release of 11 million. But then again, we don't know how much this uh, labor uh, forecasting really matters, given that private leading indicators of data suggest things are probably not as hot as they appear uh, because we're starting to see websites like indeed.com post less uh, aggressive hiring attempts or they're advertising less for hiring. Uh, Basically, everything seems to be inflecting substantially downwards when it comes to actually hiring. So this JOLTS report, which is again the government's data, might be relatively lagging once again. Uh, then uh, on Thursday, we'll get initial jobless claims. We keep sitting around 190,000 jobless claims, which is way lower than what economists are really expecting to actually show weakness in, how, in, in joblessness. But then again, this is a very lagging indicator. Uh, so more interestingly, these are the interesting ones. We're going to get the actual labor report on the 10th at 5.30 a.m. Pacific, 8.30 Eastern time. I will be live streaming that potentially from Florida. Uh, that's right. I'm, I'm expecting to go to Florida this week. Uh, we got to look at some real estate for my housing startup. Uh, you can learn, by the way, every kind of perspective that I have for making money uh, in either real estate or stocks or building wealth or making more money at your job via the courses linked down below. But I will be exploring for my real estate startup, Florida real estate, places hot, hot, hot. Literally, the weather's a lot warmer than where it is in the rest of the country, but real estate's also doing phenomenal there. But anyway, I'll be streaming that live at 5.30 a.m. Pacific time, 8.30 a.m. Eastern time. We're expecting 215,000 jobs. Unemployment rate stable at 3.4. 215,000 jobs, by the way, will be less than the 517,000 jobs we got last time. I will also be looking at average hourly earnings. Very important. We expect that to be stable at 0.3%. That's probably one of the most important numbers is a stable 0.3% on the month over month because the year over year is expected to come in a little hot thanks to just sort of year over year numbers. We're looking at 4.7 versus the last report of 4.4. So that'll show an increase, but as long as that month over month remains stable at 0.3%, should be okay. Maybe we'll even get a miss there and come in at 0.2. Then of course on the 14th, which I believe is a Tuesday, the following Tuesday, we're going to get CPI. That is the consumer price index, month over month, prior, 0.5. Survey says 0.4. That's still very hot. 0.4 still represents 4.8% annualized inflation. Don't talk to me about exponents. Annualized is always times 12. If you do the math, you'll see why. Anyway, CPI, X, food, and energy, month over month, 0.4. A match of the prior for the expectation. Year over year. Oh, this actually moved up a little bit. Year over year, the prior release was 6.4. The last time I checked this survey, it was sitting at 5.9. It's actually moved up to now 6%. CPI, X, food, and energy, year over year, prior release, 5.6. This survey, 5.4. So you can see you're kind of seeing a very, very slow softening on some of these numbers, which isn't great. Kind of implies that sort of stickiness for inflation. In my opinion, as long as we don't get some kind of horrible outlier, like a 0.6 month over month, uh, or something insane, uh, which would really be 0.6, 0.7, whatever, uh, we, we should be able to confirm that we're in the direction of not Paul Volcker. However, we are in the direction of 
Higher for longer, baby. Higher for longer. And who doesn't want to be higher for longer? I mean, the fading effects of inflation are just... Anyway, uh, okay, so uh, then after that, uh, we will, of course, have the Federal Reserve's Open Market uh, Committee uh, meeting and press conference. The most important one here is going to be uh, the 22nd. That is the date. You want to mark your calendar for that. That would be an 11 a.m. or Pacific time, 2 p.m. Eastern time on the 22nd. Write that one down. I'll be streaming that as well. CPI, jobs, Fed will be streaming. On the 15th, which is literally the very day after CPI comes out, we'll get PPI, uh, that is the producer price inflation number. We're expecting that to be 0.3% month over month, well down from the 0.7 prior. Core, uh, ex-food and energy, slightly higher, 0.4, but still down from the 0.5 prior. And uh, by the way, that's the Ides of March, March 15th. It's also the day ChatGPT is supposed to be introducing new stuff. Uh, anywho, PPI, ex-food, energy, trade, 0.6 prior, 0.3 survey. So we'll see. That would be nice. So if we could just get a stable CPI, stable PPI, if they could just meet these expectations, I don't, I don't need a big, you know, like, like a big thank you or whatever, like some kind of big low read or whatever to pump stocks in the short term. Uh, it, it, as long as we're not going towards Paul Volcker, I'm very happy with my investing thesis. My investing thesis is not going to do well if we have Paul Volcker. No investing thesis is going to do well if we hit Paul Volcker other than short, sell, and cash. But I don't think we're going to a Paul Volcker. I think we are going to go through a Nike swoosh, unstable recovery that is going to substantially favor stocks with big PP. How hard is it to just ask for a reward for having big PP? That's all we're asking for. We just want to be rewarded for having a large PP. Because large pricing power is exactly what we should be looking for at companies going forward, in my opinion. Uh, then we also, uh, on God, wow, a lot of catalysts. Then we also get retail sales data on the 15th. Retail sales data, rather than exp uh, jumping 3% because of that stupid January data we talked about, we're actually going from 3% to just 0.2%. I'm telling you, folks, it's like the, the, the January numbers are just insane. Retail sales X auto 0.3 is the survey from 2.3 in the prior. Good Lord. Business inventories come out the same day on the 15th, expected to be flat. Prior was a 0.3 increase. So, uh, whoo, boy, that's, uh, that's, those are a lot, a lot of catalysts. Very, very, very big amount of catalysts. So uh, somebody here uh, writes, I don't know, Kevin, lots of downside to go. <laughs> well, if we get towards Paul Volcker, you might be right. You might be right. Uh, check here. Listen to the story from Fox on this train derailment, and I'll comment on it. But I really have to go to the bathroom, so I'll be right back. In East Palestine. Last night's incident in Springfield, about 230 miles west of the first incident, prompting officials to declare a temporary shelter in place for everyone within 1,000 feet of the train. That order is now lifted as both Norfolk Southern and the Springfield Fire Department say nobody was injured and no hazardous materials were on the board um, at the time of the incident. Officials are expected to give an update a little later today. A Minnesota court is forcing USA powerlifting to reverse its transgender policy, which did not allow transgender women to compete with biological women. Oh my goodness. The court says the transgender female athletes risk of mental health problems 
offset their biological advantage. USA Powerlifting now considering an appeal saying their policies are based on the significant difference in capabilities of trans women and biological women. And those are headlines. So if you in put on a dress and I lift weights with you, but you wear a dress, but you are not mentally well, you're that's going to make it equal. Like, what is going on? My takeaway from this is, and I'm not taking a shot, a Minnesota judge. Minnesota court decided that th to throw out the policy that prevented this from happening before. Yeah. So it's not a shot at Minnesota. What it is is... It should be. <laughs> well, I, there, just because you're a judge doesn't mean you have good judgment. We, we, you know, a black robe does not make one wise. It's, that's, and the judge appears to know more about what's good for weightlifting other than the weightlifting association. Okay, I'm sorry. I, I, yeah, yeah, that was... Okay, too much coffee. I'm sorry. I, I, that rarely happens. <laughs> uh, but anyway, I was able to listen while I was uh, there. And I did also read about the uh, train derailment uh, this morning. Uh, the same company, Northrop Southern, uh, same company. Another 20 train cars derailed. Supposedly, this one didn't have toxic material on board. Also worth noting that uh, the, the prior uh, rail car with toxic material actually wasn't a high toxic like hazmat train car setup uh, so it may not have fallen under a lot of regulations that called for more scrutiny for toxic carrying train cars and that's because the chemicals themselves really weren't deemed to be classified as toxic in themselves it really became toxic when they decided to light them on fire <sighs> what a mess uh, and then you know I've, I've already made a video on my opinion on the whole biological men, biological woman th women thing. I'd prefer not to go down that road right now again. You could just type that into YouTube. Meet Kevin, biological woman. And uh, yeah, you'll get my take on that. All right, next up, we have a question here uh, on house hack. Uh, okay. So I think it's a fair question. <clears throat> Question here is, how is House Hack different from Grant Cardone? All right, massively different. First of all, Grant Cardone's business, Cardone Capital, is a syndication. And syndications, what they do is they're really a partnership. So you identify a property general, generally, and there have been some allegations of this, and I've seen some numbers around this, but I don't want to confirm that this is the case, but there have been some ideas that uh, maybe uh, Cardone will buy a, let's say, $20 million apartment building and then sell it to his own company for $23 million and sort of pocket the difference. And you can kind of scale that numbers. I don't know. Uh, now, it's that's okay to do if you're improving the condition of the property, but if you're really doing nothing other than putting your brand on it, Probably not the best argument for suggesting the property's value just increased because you just put your name on it. But anyway, that aside, those are just some allegations. We don't know if those are, those are absolutely true. If that happens all the time, we don't know. But the point is, let's say then you have this $23 million building and then you buy it as a partnership. You buy it as a partnership, then you get distributions. So you get uh, depreciation, 
you have to deal with the tax, uh, ta you have to get your K-1 and your distribution letter. You have to deal with uh, the fact that you're a partner, essentially. So you, it's, it complicates your taxes a little bit. But the big thing that you want to remember with a syndication is you're usually a partner, a limited partner, and you're looking at uh, probably somewhere between, uh, well, the, the traditional institutional model is what's called um, a two and 20. So like you'll see like 2% asset under management fee, and then you'll see a 20% take from the manager, so that could be like the Cardone in this example, on uh, any kind of appreciation that occurs on the property or extra cash flow above a certain point. In the case of Cardone, I believe the fees are uh, about 1% uh, for the asset, but he takes somewhere between 30 to 35% of the appreciation and the cash flow above a certain point. The fees are very, very high, in my opinion, for the personal investor. And what this really is, is it's a way to invest in real estate without you having to do anything, right? That's really what that is. That's not necessarily bad. I personally think syndications are extremely expensive, but hey, maybe if you could find somebody who can promise you a really good deal or, or whatever, you actually think it's a good deal, fantastic. House hack is not you investing in real estate. It's completely different. Uh, and so I'm not even competing in the syndication space. So in my opinion, these are so different. It's not like one versus the other. Uh, even though you're asking that question, I think that's because people are like, oh, you both promote stuff on YouTube. Like, okay, that's fine. Uh, but, but the similarities really stop there because Househack, my real estate startup, uh, is a company that really wants to create, uh, and, and we've got a path for this, and all of the details in our slide deck and everything will be coming out for our Reg A fundraise, probably between April to June. I'm hoping for May, maybe even April if we can get it out. We're already raising money from accredited investors. You can learn more at househack.com, non-accredited coming up. But uh, really, the goal is, how can we make Househack the vanguard of real estate? In other words, rather than making money off of people's fees, we're trying to eliminate or massively reduce fees that exist in real estate. And there are ways we can do that by arbitraging uh, basically fixer-uppers, what I call wedge deals, and actually adding value to them, stabilizing them, and then figuring out from there, how can we take portfolios, whether they're multifamily or single family, and uh, give people an opportunity to invest in them at basically potentially low to no fees. That's essentially becoming the vanguard of real estate or the Robin Hood, if you will, of real estate, right? Commission-free trading, right? That kind of idea. So Househack is a company that is, you're investing in. So you're investing in stock in a company. It's not, it's not ownership in real estate. It's ownership in a company. And the company is creating a platform for making investing in real estate low fee and extremely accessible. That's what Househack is. Now, Househack will own real estate. Bare minimum, we think we would be like an invitation homes where we could just buy real estate and huddle it. That was sort of the original uh, idea as like the bare minimum. That's, that's already easy enough, in my opinion, knock on wood, hashtag no guarantees. But we think we can actually take that idea and expand it even more. And instead of being a company that potentially trades for two times book, we think we could be a company that trades for, you know, 10, 20 times book, uh, depending on what kind of platform we could create. Uh, so we're really excited about that. But, but as you can see from my definition, we're, we're not a syndication. It's, it's, a, it's a company. It's a totally separate. It's totally different. It's, more, it's much more similar to if Vanguard were public, you investing in Vanguard 
than it is you investing in a partnership on some real estate building where a promoter puts their name on it and takes, you know, a 30% fee or whatever. Uh, it, it, very, very different from that. So hopefully that gives a little bit of clarity because uh, while I'm not providing all of the details yet, uh, because we're working those through to make sure we have a, a very, very clear set of messaging for you and, and not only uh, uh, SEC uh, reviewed, but attorney approved uh, marketing and pamphlets and, and, you know, projections. We haven't released projections before and uh, this time we will. So all of the people who are accredited who have been investing, uh, we've been very clear, like there are no projections. We, we, we don't, we don't know. We, we're so early. We don't know. Now, those people who've been investing early, they get a benefit. They've been getting basically free call options, not really call options. You could read the PPM to understand what they are, but basically like warrants, which are like call options on a company for free for investing earlier. Uh, and we're raising money at a one-to-one -one valuation. So there's, there's, you know, in my opinion, you're in a position where there's zero dilution day one, with the exception of sort of minor little fees or whatever uh, for, for uh, filing fees or whatever. Uh, but uh, what the beauty about that is, my opinion is, look, uh, you know, the, the basic idea is that if a company sells for one times book, there's really no value that you're even putting on the company. You're just basically raising cash, which is phenomenal. It's a great way to get in as an investor. And we're going to maintain that one-to-one -one ratio for, uh, for, for the Reg A. There's no company dilution. Like usually people put in, you know, 10 bucks into a company. That represents $9 for the company and the idea and $1 for the actual cash the company gets. That's called dilution, right? That's like you raise $20 million at a $200 million valuation, you know, 90% of that just went to sort of brand and the idea. In this case, 100% goes to cash with Househack, which we think is wonderful. Uh, and, and it's the biggest thank you that we could give to our the people who watch us on YouTube. So for us, we look at uh, not only the valuation we were, we're raising at, but also the future, what the future could be is, is really phenomenal. I mean, again, no guarantees, but a one-to-one -one valuation, worst case scenario should, have, we think, at least double to be like a worst case scenario, sort of like invitation homes or whatever, where you buy and hodl real estate, because they sell for, you know, depending on where the market is, somewhere around two times book. But if you actually create a, a platform, a technology, you create sort of that vanguard of real estate, it can be substantially higher than that. What that is, we, we don't know because it hasn't been done before. Uh, you know, and then and then people are like, oh, how, how's this different from, from like Zillow or Opendoor? I mean, in my opinion, Massively different as well. I'll just very briefly explain that. We're not flipping homes on the market. We're not reselling homes with agents. We're, we're not, you know, we're, we're buying homes with agents and wholesalers. Anyone who wants to sell us, send us deals is fine. The United States has become very, very small, by the way, after flying around as much as we have been. We're going to Florida this week to explore Florida real estate. We're going to have a very diversified portfolio of real estate that we're going to use as sort of the basis uh, for the platform we're creating. But uh, we're, we're not trying to flip homes uh, in the way that Zillow or Opendoor do where, I mean, just watch some of my videos from Hack where we walk through Opendoor listings and you just have this complete embarrassment of, of a property listing. We don't want to put properties on the market. We don't want to deal with that. We want to buy properties, rent them out, stabilize them, and then use that as a basis for how can we create the vanguard of real estate. Now, we have a path for that obviously no guarantees, but we are creating something that hasn't been created before. So we're very excited about that. Uh, obviously, there's there's risk with any kind of uh, investment. But yeah, I want to make that clear because I think the most common questions I get are, when can non-accredited investors invest? And we're thinking between April and uh, June, hopefully April. That's the goal, but it just depends on when the SEC review goes through. 
uh, and, uh, it, it, and and then by that point we'll have uh, we'll have a lot more information as well. But that gives you at least some differences. Somebody here asks, what happened to the AI software? Yeah, well, so look, in my opinion, AI is like a buzzword that that people use. A every company should be using AI. So we don't develop the actual AI, right? That's what Google does. Like we use Google as the basis for our AI, and then we use Google's basis. It's kind of like using the API from ChatGPT, which we could use as well, and using that as the basis for building your own tools on that. And so we have that, right? For example, we have a deal finder, uh, we call it the wedge finder, which is built on uh, the, the AI that Google has created. And then we train their models to create our own, essentially, AI uh, the, based on our training. So think about it kind of like you buy a, an Optimus robot from Tesla, uh, and then you train it to do exactly what you want. You know, maybe you just want it to sit in your office and kind of move its hand up and down. I, I don't know. That, that, and then it gets really good at doing that. Like, what, whatever you train the AI to do is, is your thing. So that's what we do, right? And we actually think, I mean, obviously, every company should be thinking about this, but AI can be fantastic for preventive prof property management, deal finding, uh, valuation. I don't think it's anywhere close to yet on valuation, but potentially could be somewhat useful. Uh, so there's a lot of work uh, and perfecting to do for AI. But that'll all happen over the next decade. You know, that's not something that you have to like pull out of your butt today and say, oh my God, we got the best AI in the world. Anybody who says that today is like, no, no, you're lying. <laughs> AI ain't that great yet. <laughs> you, you can't do AI yet without, without real uh, human involvement anywhere near at this point, uh, in, in, in my opinion. So I'm, I'm very excited about that. Uh, very, very excited. So, uh, but speaking about uh, dilution, uh, I will be posting in full the Boxable video today. I'm just gonna post the full interview uh, and maybe in the future I'll do sort of a more cut up version of it, but I'm just gonna post the entire thing. It's like an hour and a half long. What I want you to pay specific attention to though is remember how we've talked about dilution already in, in, in this segment here. Uh, something to, to consider is, is the valuation at Boxable. And then you have to determine yourself if you think that's worth it. You know, this is not me trying to like compare to Boxable. I, I have nothing to do with Boxable. I'm not invested in that Boxable. I'm not an affiliate of Boxable. I'm I solely doing some quick valuation math. Uh, and off the top of my head, I, I, if I remember correctly, it was something like if you invested a million dollars into Boxable uh, today, that would be worth roughly $330 of cash. So in other words, you would be paying $999,777 in dilution, which is basically just brand value for Boxable. Uh, because I was thinking about it, and I'm like, well, what if I invested a million dollars right now into Boxable? Like, how much cash does that get me, right? And, and uh, yeah, okay, look, straight up, like to be blunt, in comparison, it shows you if you put a million dollars into house hack, it literally equals a million dollars of cash, right? Yes, yes, I will compare. Like I will selflessly compare, shamelessly compare myself and say, if you put a million dollars in house hack, it equals a million dollars of cash. You pay zero for my ideas or the brand or whatever, right? A little bit for like fees or like a little expenses, obviously that have already been incurred, duh. Uh, but but there's, no, there's no like brand value uh, that is included in that. Whereas here, a million dollars in the boxable equals $330 of cash. And, and that's because they're trying, they're raising money at like over $3 billion of evaluation. It's so like, whoa. Okay, so you really have to believe in the idea. Uh, so, so anyway, that, that's sort of my thought, uh, my thesis.
so anyway, I'll, I'll post that video, uh, you know, later today. Uh, you know, maybe even this morning, I'll just post it. So, so stay tuned for that. And, uh, and you'll see, how do you make money on house hack? Yeah, fair question. Uh, <laughs> somebody writes, I used to work at Boxable. You're not too far off. I won't add any commentary to that. So how do you make money on house hack? Yeah, that's actually probably uh, the thing we're most excited about. And I'm not prepared to reveal that right now because it would be somewhat anti-competitive. But uh, we think there are uh, massive opportunities for the next 20 years to milk massive amounts of cash flow while at the same time becoming the vanguard of real estate. Now, even me saying that, that sounds too good to be true, but let's just say with the vision that we have, I'm betting my entire net worth on it. Everything I have, my car, my house, my plane, uh, my net worth, my stocks, everything I own, I am betting uh, on house hack because I will keep uh, it, it, you know, throwing everything I have at house hack because I believe in it so much. I, I think the idea that we have at bare minimum is, is a phenomenal, uh, competitor to invitation of That's like the bare minimum in my opinion. That's the, that's the safety net. That's like, that's like, oh, our ambitions didn't work out. We're falling to the level of social security, right? Like, oh, I shouldn't say social security. I should say like Medicare, because it's like, crap, we <laughs> went to poverty. That's sort of the very, but with, with the big visions that I have, I, I think the investment that I'm making going all in, uh, risking everything that I have for, for house hack is, is because I believe the idea we have will be a, a multi-billion dollar idea. So I'm, I couldn't be more excited. I mean, you'd, let me put it this way. Let me put it this way. You'd have to be an idiot to spend $13 million on a plane yourself and sign on that debt yourself and pay for flights yourself for a company. That is, I pay all of the flights for house hack right now. Every dime of flights is paid for by Kevin. So I can fly around and make sure we have the best start for house hack. You'd have to be an idiot to do that. Unless of course you thought that was going to become a multi-billion dollar company in the future. So <laughs> that's what I believe. Now people say I'm crazy, but then, you know, we'll see. Uh, yeah, you can invest internationally into house hack. Will house hack come to North Korea? Um, you know, Korea hack might be a couple decades before we get there. Uh, but uh, we were th <laughs> we, we were joking uh, about like, uh, well, actually not really joking, but we were kind of like, how can we invest in Canada now that Canada has um, sort of banned foreign investors? We're kind of like, is it time for househack.a? <laughs> anyway, sorry, bad joke. Anyway, uh, so that gives you a little bit of an update. I appreciate the question. I think it's a good question. So uh, there we go. <clears throat> Somebody says paid for by Kevin's media company, not actually Kevin. Right? I mean, that's really one, nearly one in the same, right? I mean, if you think about it, it's it's uh, my media business right now is taxed as a pass through entity. So the money that I make from, uh, you know, what I think are really good programs, by the way, like it's not like. Like the stuff in the programs is stuff that I actually do, right? My stocks and psychology money group and my real estate course, the do-it-yourself property management courses. Those courses are things that I actually do and actually use to make money. Like that's that's the that's the basis of house hack, right? Like you want to know the strategies house hack's going to employ. Zero to millionaire course is like a perfect way to see that. But but yeah, look, the money that I make goes into right now an S corporate structure in the future, my C corp media stuff. But it's basically a pass-through entity. So. I uh, receive that money and then I pay expenses, right? Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, what, what, I, I don't know how much that really matters. I mean, you could make the argument uh, that, uh, 
uh, the, you know, yeah, uh, the media business covers it, uh, you know, which, which we probably should just make that argument. I could just clarify that now that, yeah, the media business pays that, uh, which again is the S corp, but that just means I get less pass through money from my media business. Right. So I don't know how much of a difference that really makes, uh, whether, whether it's media biz or Kev, because again, like I am the media biz, right? Uh, so like pretty much everything I do is, is the media biz. I, I don't, I don't know if that matters. So, uh, you know, it's, yeah, I mean, of course, obviously it's a write-off for the media biz, right? Because I make Instagram content or YouTube content. Yeah. I mean, obviously there's a, there's the argument that, Hey, well, you know, the media business can operate because I'm able to be back in the studio regularly, right? Uh, I think there's a there's a very clear argument there that the media business is only able to keep going because I'm able to fly around the way we are. So, uh, but I don't know that that really matters that much. Uh, anyway, so, uh, but hey, look, I, I'm all for transparency. So we'll just make it very clear. Uh, House Hack does not pay plane. What we call, it's the, my S Corp is called the Pafrath Organization, doing business as Meet Kevin. That pays for the plane takes a tax write-off for doing so, creates brand value or whatever you want to call it, advertising value for, for the channel uh, or for Instagram or whatever, and, and maybe the programs on Building Your Wealth and enables me to make this content. And then whatever I get left over is, is what I have left over. Now, remember, I personally signed on the debt. And you could look this up. Uh, you know, like my wife and my names are on it. <laughs> so we're on the hook for it. But anyway, I, I always want to be very clear about that. Uh, yeah, so we've been audited already. Uh, that's very normal when you're trying to uh, file for with the SEC. You have to have audited financials. So DB McKinnon already did our first audit, uh, but the first audit only goes through, I think it's September 30th. Uh, so we are completing our next audit within the next week, and that's what we're going to send to the SEC. So that way the SEC gets a full audit. Uh, I'm not sure if it goes, I think it goes through the, either the end of January or the end of December. But either way, yes. Obviously, when you do a reg A, you have audited financials. Uh, so yes, they will be audited by uh, by a big four auditing company. So, uh, all right, let's move on. Th thank you for those questions. Very, very good questions. Very fair. Very reasonable. I'll always answer them. Next, we need to. We oh boy, there's a lot to talk about. All right, stand by. Somebody says, meet Kevin ETF. I already have an ETF. <laughs> All right. So we talked forecasts. Oh, yeah. Now we got to talk. Okay. Yeah, this is a big one. All right. Now we got to talk about Ukraine. How much money has been spent? Are sanctions working? Who's really supporting Ukraine? How much money has the United States spent on Ukraine? What does the world think? What is the world doing? What's going on with Ukraine? Now, this is a big deal because obviously we've got an election cycle coming up in 2024 and a lot, in my opinion, is going to have to do with Ukraine. So you've got to know about it. Not only do you have to know about it because going to be part of our election cycle. Obviously, there's a massive amount of loss of life, which is terrible happening as well. But we have to be aware of what the implications could be for the ending of the war or the continuation of the war in Ukraine. So first, it's worth remembering that Joe Biden at the beginning of this war talked about how, Joe, how uh, Vladimir Putin could not stay in power after his invasion into Ukraine. And initially, there was worldwide support for basically 
beating Russia, potentially going as far as calling for regime change in Russia, maybe even as far as the assassination of Vladimir Putin. Yet what's happening recently is almost the complete opposite. In fact, now, according to the Wall Street Journal, a massive piece they just released, the French and German government realize that the best solution is not trying to defeat Russia, but it is rather to push for peace talks in Russia. Now, so far, Olaf Scholz, the Chancellor of Germany, Deutschland, and Joe Biden have showed publicly a very united front against Russia. And they've publicly been promising massive amounts of either monetary uh, or military support for Ukraine. However, in private, France and Germany, some of the biggest players in the EU bloc, are starting to push for a negotiated end in Russia. That's because initially Russia seemed very isolated. Only four countries initially backed Russia in their incursion into Ukraine. However, many more countries are now moving to a very neutral stance, viewing this as really a regional conference or a conflict that may continue for a while into the future. And the world is really becoming much more fragmented. See, initially, the world seemed very united in the number of sanctions that were going to help block semiconductors and aircrafts and even automotive parts getting to Russia. However, those sanctions haven't really devastated Russia as much as we had thought they would, mostly because, guess what? Countries like Kazakhstan, China, and Turkey, or Kazakhstan, Kazakhstan, whatever, however you want to say it, sorry for my mispronunciation here, uh, are starting to make up the difference and the shortfall. And that's because the world is starting to flip around sanctions. Take a look at this. Look at this particular chart here from Bloomberg. Chip exports to Russia soar. Russia is sourcing more semiconductors through third countries, like Kazakhstan, Turkey, and Serbia. Look at the inflection point. The inflection point, if we draw this right here, here, and here, we're all the beginning of the war. So while at the beginning of the war, we didn't actually see a lot of countries provide uh, support or chips to Russia, now all of a sudden, Russia is filling up the gap of chips that they were originally getting from the United States from other countries. In other words, other countries are realizing, wait a minute, if we can import the American semiconductors and just re-export them for a premium to Russia, why would we not take that potential profit? And that's exactly what's happening because the world is thinking, wait a minute, there's money to be made here. And ultimately, we need to think about our own country rather than every other country's desires. And right now, American sanctions and European sanctions are really being seen as the desire of NATO. But not every country necessarily agrees with that. Russia's chip imports from the United States fell from about $163 billion to, uh, sorry, $163 million, it's not that high, it's not billions, million dollars to about $60 million. But now the rest of the world is starting to make up that gap by importing US and European made chips and then just re-exporting them to Russia. The same is being done with cars. Look at what China's doing. Initially, Russians have their own vehicles and their own automotive parts. But now what's happening? Chinese passenger vehicles are replacing Russia's supply chain gap because it's profitable to do so. North Korea is sending artillery shells to arm Russia because it's profitable to do so. 
Iran is providing kamikaze drones and is planning on building a multi-billion dollar factory to manufacture kamikaze drones outside of Moscow to help the war effort because it is profitable for Iran to do so. Now, Russia still lacks higher tech equipment like precision missile, missiles, night vision goggles, surveillance drones are lacking. But what's happening? More and more countries are filling in the gap. India remains pretty neutral because on one hand, they're trying to attract investment into India from companies like Apple and Tesla who are moving from China to potentially India or are considering adding fabrication capabilities in India. While at the same time, India is also helping supply Russia with equipment that they're exporting to Russia and also at the same time importing Russian oil, which Russian oil sanctions have been nearly a complete abject failure. See, back in uh, the pre-World War II days, sanctions actually meant something. We could actually sanction a company and they would have an impact. Yet today, what do we have? Well, we have individuals like uh, an analyst, Mr. Paul Sankey. Paul Sankey, he uh, works at Sankey Research. He's an oil analyst. And what does he say? He says, quote, the oil price caps and the sanctions against Russia were, quote, invented by bureaucrats with finance degrees. None of them really understand oil markets. The sanctions against Russia for oil have been, quote, a total bomb, a complete failure. So in other words, the world is basically just adapting to a world at war, uh, or, or rather Russia at war with Ukraine. And now we have to also ask ourselves, how much is Russia really capable of doing? Well, so far, Russia is capable of fighting in Crimea and Southeast Ukraine. That's it. Russia hasn't been able to get much further. Now, sure, it could be argued that the reason they haven't been able to get much further is because of Western support. But whatever the reason is, Russia, whom, you know, you've got a lot of folks uh, in America clamoring about saying, oh my gosh, Russia is a nuclear threat. Oh no, Russia is going to attack the United States and Western Europe. Uh, 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 oh no, we're screwed if we don't defeat Russia. All of Russia so far has not been able to get any further than Southeastern Ukraine and Crimea. Ukraine, which this is not a slam on Ukraine. This is just, this is just, I mean, Google it yourself. Ukraine has one of the, it's probably actually has the worst corruption rating in Europe and one of the poorest countries in Europe. That is not a bag on Ukraine. It's just to say a country that is rated at that level is having, is basically holding off Russia. So how much of a threat really is Russia when we think about it that way? Are they really a nuclear loose cannon? So it's, it's worth thinking about that because so far, as much as we want the conflict to end, and I'm a big fan of this conflict being over, this idea that, oh, we're about to go into a World War III seems a little extreme because if World War III is starting with, we can't really chop away Southeastern Ukraine, then World War III is, is not like a world war. It's a regionalized conflict. Now that's important to consider. And again, it's not to say that Ukrainian sovereignty shouldn't be respected, but it is an argument that Russia's not doing so fantastically well enough to really create concerns for World War III. And Ukraine isn't able to get them out of Southeast Ukraine. So the reality is this is probably going to drag on until the money dries up on one side. And ultimately there's a negotiated settlement. 
that's probably the way things are leaning right now. And that's probably why you're seeing a lot of countries become a lot more neutral on this. Consider Dubai is a hub now for Russians, where Western sanctions can't reach people in Dubai, part of the United Arab Emirates. Half of African countries are abstaining from denouncing at the United Nations Russia's incursion into Ukraine. Colombia recently refused a United States request to provide weapons to Ukraine by arguing, quote, we will not help prolong any war. Brazil makes the argument that, quote, if one does not want to, two cannot fight. Now, we can have a whole separate video on that argument because obviously the Ukrainian argument is here. Hey, we're being invaded. We're being forced to fight. But it shows you that not every country is saying, hey, this is something we really need to heavily focus on. And countries are starting to focus on themselves. For example, Hungary was the one EU country basically delaying and standing in the way of certain EU decisions that require unanimous consent in fighting Russia, in helping a non-NATO uh, non member, Ukraine. And so Hungary is even standing in the way. Of, of some of this united fight against Russia. Now, you do have the U.S., Germany, France, Italy, and U.K. who seem staunchly behind Ukraine, but Russia is also getting a lot of, dare I say, neutral or blatant support from countries around other parts of the world, whether those are African countries, Middle Eastern countries, or Asian countries. So it feels like you're kind of creating a cataclysm of sort of two... Uh, axes, if you will, of, of a potential world war. But really, most countries seem to be looking at this as what it right now is, a regional conflict making people question their heads uh, or, or scratch their heads on how much do we really want to be involved in this? And so this is where we have to look at the charts and the amount of money that's being spent to support Ukraine. Where is most of the money coming from? Take a look at this. You ready for this? This is a chart that show, from the Council of Foreign Relations. This is a chart that shows U.S. aid to Ukraine far exceeds that from other countries. Look at this. Military aid to Ukraine, over $46 billion from the United States. Where's the military aid from EU institutions? Oh, it's basically zero. Now, there is military aid from the United Kingdom, Germany, Canada, Poland, France, the Netherlands, Norway. But look how small. The highest one is somewhere around $6 billion from the, United, from the United Kingdom. We're at $46 billion. Now, yes, we are a larger economy, but we're also not in Europe. Look at the countries within Europe that are, uh, that are supporting uh, as, uh, or sending the most amount of money as a percentage of GDP. So now this is useful because it, it shows you as a percentage of GDP who's spending more money. And in this case, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and Poland are spending the most amount of money as a percentage of GDP to fight off Russia. Now, that makes a lot of sense because those are the countries that are potentially most at risk of Russia being on their doorstep more than they already are. So that makes sense. But again, it shows you how regionalized this conflict is. Even Germany, whose Olaf Scholz you know, slams his fists on the tables going, hey, come on, Spain, come on, Poland. Y'all said you're going to send tanks to, to Ukraine. Where are they? And then you get countries like Portugal saying, yeah, 
we don't know if our tanks actually work. We'll send refurbed ones, but we, we don't know if the stuff we have actually functions. You can't make this stuff up. That's literally what's happening. But shows you that obviously the countries that are putting most of the money into this are ones most closely potentially affected by what appears right now to be a very regional conflict. And again, I want to make it clear. I denounce the loss of life, especially innocent life. Men, women, and children who have nothing to do with the war effort losing their lives is not fair. It's terrible. It's a travesty. It's a tragedy. I, I, I can't stand to even uh, think about how, how horrible it is, the atrocities that are happening. And the fact is, that's true on both sides. You know, people are losing their sons and daughters in this war. And I can never imagine that, having two children. I, I can't imagine it. So it's terrible. But the point is, look at where the money is coming from. $76.8 billion of aid going to Ukraine from the United States. This is a massive amount of money the United States is sending to Ukraine. Look at how it breaks down. $46.6 billion are going into the military. 18.3 into security assistance, which includes training, equipment, weapons, logistics, support, and other assistance provided through the Ukraine Security Assistance Initiative. $23.5 billion going to weapons and equipment. $4.7 going to grants and loans for weapons and equipment. $26.4 billion going directly into economic support, loans, and other financial support so they can maintain their government. Humanitarian aid at $3.9 billion for food, healthcare, refugee support, and otherwise. This is a massive amount of money flowing into Ukraine. Here is the arsenal that is going into Ukraine from the United States. 8,500 javelins, 1,600 stingers, 13,000 grenade launchers and small arms, uh, small arms, 75,000 sets of body armor, one Patriot air defense system. I'm not going to read all of this. 20 manned aircraft. Uh, well, 20 M1, uh, sorry, MI-17 helicopters, uh, 700 switchblade drones and 1,800 ghost drones. 15 surveillance drones, 109 Bradley tanks, 1,700 Humvees, satellite services, radar communication services, 16, 160 rather, howitzers, 155 millimeter howitzers, 38 HIMARS systems. I mean, this is a massive amount of stuff. Like, I would be wetting myself if I was like Lockheed Martin and, and uh, you know, part of the military industrial complex right now because I'm like, dude, I got to make more. And that's kind of exactly what's happening. The military industrial complex is salivating over this because there's so much of a backlog that is being uh, created for these uh, uh, for the military manufacturers to continue manufacturing. But in a weird way, maybe not a weird way, actually, uh, the world is seeming to come to terms with this idea that this regional conflict is likely to go on for a while. And according to Foreign Affairs magazine, that might be exactly what Putin's plan is. How long can he last and get to maybe the 2024 elections where then you end up having a politically unpopular war start really coming up for discussion in European elections and American elections or otherwise that could potentially slow the tap of funding? You already have Republicans, including Donald Trump, saying they want to limit the Department of Defense spending to limit the amount of money that is being sent to Ukraine. So the political unpopularity of sending money to Ukraine is already building up. Putin just has to outlast the money supply. And that might be the strategy 
he is implementing. Especially since you have, dare I say, a near apologist for the military industrial complex, CNN. Okay, and, and look, I get it. CNN has, has one narrative, okay? We know that. And they are nearly an apologist for the military industrial complex. This is a company that I personally had to send a cease and desist letter to when they censored my governor campaign for governor of California. I came in second out of recall candidates. Okay, they chose to prop up their governor. They were censoring my campaign. We almost sued them. Anyway, even CNN, who basically is nearly an apologist for the Biden administration, they say the U.S. has, quote, few ways to track the substantial supply of anti-tank, anti-aircraft, and other weaponry it has sent into Ukraine. In other words, we have no idea where all of the stuff, the equipment we are sending to Ukraine is going. It's time to start buying some Apple AirTags and attaching them to multi-million dollar pieces of equipment. You think a four-pack of $99 of Apple AirTags could actually give us some intel on where this equipment is going. But apparently that's not a priority. It is not a priority to use a $25 Apple AirTag on a multi-million dollar piece of equipment so we can know where the hell it is and see if it's falling into the wrong hands because for some reason that is too complicated for the government to orchestrate. Because after all, quote, in the fog of war, weapons drop into a big black hole. You almost have no sense of where the weapons go after a short period of time. That is literally what the United States government says as an excuse to why we don't track all of the weapons that go into Ukraine, especially the expensive stuff. It's, ah, well, it's the fog of war. This is just how things are done. Now, look, I get it. A lot of the weapons that go into Ukraine are picked up in Poland. They're picked up on certain trucks in Poland. Then guess what? They're tracked by Russia. Russia wants to know where those weapons are going. Duh, because they want those weapons. So what does Ukraine do? Well, at night, they switch their trucks. They put them into different trucks. They put them into different train cars. They put them into different things to purposefully confuse where these things are going, to obfuscate where these things are going. They're doing that on purpose to make it harder for Russia to track them. But in doing so, so it also makes it harder for us to see what's going on and have any kind of accountability. This is where I petition the U.S. government to start using Apple AirTags. Yes, I am an active Apple shareholder. And yes, I run an exchange-traded fund as a licensed financial advisor and sell courses on building your wealth. And I'm a real estate broker. And I hold Apple shares <laughs> in that fund, okay? Yes, it is true. But from a logic point of view, my bias aside, it seems reasonable to want to track where very expensive military equipment is going. We literally just sent another 11 MI-17 helicopters, another 300 switchblade drones, another 18 155mm howitzer cannons, and another round of javelins and stingers, and S-300 air defense systems above and beyond the chart that I just showed you. We just allocated even more. But yet our government tells us that they can't have any clue of knowing where these weapons are going, or if they're falling into the right hands. Remember Afghanistan? A lot of our weapons that we left in Afghanistan after being there for 20 years, guess what it helped create? The foundation of the new Taliban government. It's the way war works. You buy lots of crap. When you leave it behind, military-industrial complex doesn't care because the more weapons get left behind, the more new weapons we have to make to fight the people who are now using all of the weapons we previously made and left behind. It's a disaster. It's all a disaster. 
and it's going to continue to become extremely politically unpopular. Even to the extent that now, just to show you how there's a lack of regional unity against this war in Ukraine, two Iranian warships were just allowed to dock in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, even after warnings from President Biden. President Lula, who defeated Bolsonaro, Bolsonaro really deemed to be basically the Trump of Brazil. He basically had his own freedom riot or insurrection, depending on whatever side of the aisle you're on. I don't really care. I try to report stuff mostly in the middle. Uh, obviously, everybody's got a bias. I, I really think I do my best to just try to be in the middle here. But anyway, so you've got Lula, who's initially uh, uh, denying Iranian warships for do from docking in Brazil, vowing to deny Iranian, uh, Iranian, Iranian, whatever, request to dock their military warships. But basically, after he became president, he's like, yeah, you know what? It's okay. Iran, you can dock here. And this is a slap in the face to Joe Biden. While at the same time, Iran is supporting Russia. But it shows you the lack of regional or, or really world consistency against this war in Ukraine. And this is why a lot of folks are saying support for the war in Ukraine is over. This is a regional conflict. It's going to keep dragging on. It did. It lasted way longer than people expected. And unfortunately, it's probably going to have to come down to countries like the United States, Germany, France, France, and Italy helping negotiate a solution rather than taking this approach that we did in Afghanistan, which was, quote, unquote, we will not negotiate with terrorists. Well, so then we stayed in Afghanistan for 20 years and embarrassingly left out, left a massive power vacuum, which led to the collapse of the Afghani government, which we spent 20 years and hundreds of billions of dollars to build, potentially trillions of dollars to build. And that was eradicated within weeks of us leaving because we left a power vacuum. The Taliban took our weapons and moved in. It's the same problem that Russia had in the 70s. We didn't learn lessons then. Remember, Russia was in Afghanistan in the 70s. When we say, oh, we need to invade Iraq because of and Afghanistan because of potential weapons of mass destruction. When Russia was there in the 70s, we gave them plans for nuclear weapons. Anyway, point is, there's a massive disaster going on in the world right now that basically is a middle finger to the Biden administration and the Ukrainian government. And that is that the world does not no, does, does no longer unanimously support, and actually never really has, uh, this war in Ukraine. Uh, that means supporting the Ukrainian defense is, does not have unanimous support. Supporting Russia does not have unanimous support, but actually has growing support, whether it's in circumventing sanctions, protecting Russian oligarchs in the UAE, uh, uh, circumventing car sanctions, oil sanctions, uh, chip sanctions. The world does not seem to care about the war in Ukraine. The world seems to be writing this off as a regional conflict, not as a potential World War III risk. Maybe that's what was initially deemed, but the idea of World War III seems to be far-fetched right now. Now, on one hand, that's fantastic news because I don't, I don't want to start making World War III videos as much as I made stimulus videos. I would much rather just talk about Jerome Powell and Federal Reserve and stocks I like. So, my opinion on all of this. World War III, 
massively overblown fear-mongering. The world does not seem to care. That sounds very insensitive, but it's just the cold, hard reality when we start putting all of the pieces of the puzzle together. The world is not committed to the idea of Ukraine maintaining all of their land and not negotiating with Putin. The world seems much more committed to the idea that this is going to drag on until finally we get a negotiated settlement where maybe Russia takes officially, again, Crimea and parts of southeast Ukraine, like the Donetsk region. We have no idea what's going to obviously end up happening, but that seems to be the sentiment of world governments. We'll see. All right. All right. <laughs> so, let's uh, let's see what else we got here. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, real estate. Oh, we got a few things. Oh good. Oh, we got plenty of stuff. All right, great. So let's let's see. Uh, <laughs> it's a big club, and you ain't in it. Uh, citizens of the globe don't want conflict. It's a small group of elites screwing up the world. It's interesting. This conflict is a piss for the economy. Supporting Ukraine without an exit strategy is complete nonsense. Kevin, you made a, you make a huge mistake. We already have been Paul Volkert by the biggest rate hikes in 40 years. We're simply waiting for the effects to kick in. Yeah, I highly disagree with you. I, I Like, rates are still less than what inflation is. Paul Volcker was get rates above the rate of inflation. Substantially quickly. So I, I, yeah, I mean, I disagree with that. Kevin, tell Mr. Erdogan is willing to negotiate, but Ukraine is not willing to negotiate. Well, that's the thing, right? You've got a very hardline stance. And, and to some degrees, I mean, that's kind of what, what Zelensky's... Like, that's his mission, right? Zelensky, his, his purpose is to promote the hardline stance because that's allegedly what the people of Ukraine want. I don't know if they actually do. I don't know if the people... Like, I mean, I hate to say it, but if I were in Ukraine, and I don't know this, I'm not Ukrainian, but I hate to say it, but if I were in Ukraine, I'd be like, dude, I would trade having the people uh, who want to live in the region of Donetsk and the rebuilding that's going to need to happen over there. If, if they're okay getting taxed by Russia and having a Russian passport instead of a Ukrainian passport, if we could stop killing people, am I okay with that? Hell yeah. Hell yeah. You know? So, you know, I, I find it hard-pressed to believe that, uh, and I don't think there's any evidence to this idea anyway, but I, I would find it very hard-pressed to believe that everyone in Ukraine wants this conflict to go on and wants to continue to hardline this. I don't see that. All right. So, what else? Will I invest in cannabis stocks once cannabis stocks get hyped due to legislation rumors? That's a very weird question to ask. First of all, I don't ever want to invest in hype, especially not in any hype around what the government does. I think that's a terrible idea. I think that's a surefire way to lose money. Gov investing it, it, towards what the government is doing is almost pure speculation. The government is nearly dysfunctional when it comes to actually getting things done. Partly by design. That's important to remember. Maybe you should help the Germans with heat their homes. 
Oh, man. Good Lord. All right. Uh, hold on. What's this segment over here on Peaceful Taiwan? Hold on a sec. As we Chinese on both sides of the Taiwan Strait are one family bound by blood, we should advance economic and cultural exchanges and cooperation across the Taiwan Strait. The U.S. has vowed to defend Taiwan's territorial integrity. Taiwan's people aren't interested in being ruled by China's government, and President Biden has said the U.S. will use force to defend Taiwan if necessary. China also getting a bipartisan response from U.S. lawmakers who broke down the Taiwan Lend-Lease Bill and addressed concerns about China possibly invading other countries in the region. Listen. How long that, you know, we're going to just keep up with that uh, CCP's aggression after Taiwan, then what? South Korea and Japan, you see that Korean government and Japanese government, they are very nervous and we have to show that we are standing with them. It's going to reduce the red tape and it's going to increase the infrastructure to get our armaments there to support Taiwan. Look, you can call the policy whatever you want to call it. I believe that we got to be prepared to support Taiwan if they are invaded by the CCP. Meanwhile, two Ukrainian pilots are currently in the United States for a training assessment on using attack aircraft, including F-16 fighter jets. U.S. authorities have approved bringing as many as 10 more Ukrainian pilots in for assessment as early as this month. Now, last month, President Biden said he is ruling out sending Ukraine F-16 fighter jets for now, despite President Zelensky's requests. Will, Rachel, Pete? Thank you, Brooke. Hey, Brooke, what, what's mm. your sense of how the, how the government is viewing how we'll respond to Taiwan vis-a-vis -vis what's gone down in Ukraine. Are they tying the two? Well, speaking to Biden and administration officials, I mean, they say that the president's stance with regard to China is strong, and they say that he wants to leverage his longstanding relationship with Chinese President Xi. But Republicans on the Hill are warning that, you know, President Biden and Xi may have this long relationship dating back to the Biden administration, but President Xi is different than he was back then, and China is in a totally different position than they were. They view themselves as much stronger mm -hmm. than they did back then. All right, yeah. Brooke, for sure. Thank you so much, Brooke. I, I think she meant to say Obama administration. <laughs> Dating back to the Biden administration. We're still in that. <laughs> That's all right. All right. Uh, uh, U.S. officials are growing concerned that Chinese-made cranes operating at American ports across, across the country including several used by the military, could give Beijing a possible spying tool hiding in plain sight. Ooh, imagine China spying. <laughs> Every day I fly now, I feel like I'm looking out my window looking for Chinese spy balloons. It's hysterical. All right. Let's talk real estate a little bit. Ha, ha, ha. All right, one sec. Mmm, a lot of coffee. Still in the Obama administration. Stop. <laughs> oh, dear. That's that's a good one. Um, yeah, so um, let's talk real estate. One of the things that I'd like to talk about is we've got a Barclays piece. Actually, got quite a little bit here. Barclays. <laughs> some housing. We also have, oh, yeah, here we go. Yeah, no. Okay, how do we want to play this? Okay, let's jump into. Yeah. Hold on. One sec. Give me like 20 seconds here to figure this out. No. 
be more efficient. Okay, that's fine. All right. Let's talk a little bit about housing and essentially the scam that's potentially being set up for home buyers right now. And it's important to pay attention to, at least in the opinion of a Bloomberg writer who says, home buyers today are being told a lie. Now I'm going to give my opinion on this, but let's go ahead and start with this Bloomberg journalist opinion first. The Bloomberg journalist starts off by saying that realtors or people in the real estate industry today are telling their clients, you should marry the house and date the rate. That is, don't be afraid to commit to a house today. You could always refinance when rates come down. That is the argument that this Bloomberg writer suggests people in the real estate industry are telling their clients. Now, I hate to say it, but I personally find that eerily similar to what happened in 2006 and 7. That don't worry, as long as you can afford the payment for the next year, you could always just refinance at a lower rate. I personally think that is a very dangerous argument to make. You should not buy a property with the assumption that you could ever refinance it. That is very risky advice. And as a personal financial advisor, hashtag not personalized financial advice for you, I would be very hard pressed to find that okay for anyone. Now, the Bloomberg article uh, and the journalist go on to say that exactly this might be bad advice. Because even though you think you might be dating the rate, you might find out that you're in a long-term relationship with rates. In the last 10 years, rates averaged in, uh, at 3.78% for a typical 30-year fixed rate mortgage. However, this Bloomberg art, uh, article uh, or journalist goes on to say that generally, people say it makes sense to refinance only after rates have dropped 1% to 1.5%. This is despite the industry saying to people that, hey, you could refinance after rates even just drop half of a percent. Now, the Bloomberg article author didn't write, write this particular part, but I think it's worth remembering that when people say you can refinance, it's not as simple as just snapping your fingers and saying, boom, I'm going to refinance to capture a lower rate. As a former licensed lender, and still a licensed real estate broker who's done hundreds to thousands of transactions probably at this point. It's important to remember that every time you go to refinance, you have to get a new appraisal, you have to pay for escrow again, you have to pay for title again, and that's actually really important because not only do you have to pay the loan costs of whatever loan you're getting, the loan fees, which are generally called discount points for your loan, you could pay points to get a lower rate, or you could take negative points to potentially take a higher rate, which sometimes that makes sense. The shorter time frame that you have a loan for, generally the more negative points you want to take. The longer time frame, the generally the more you want to buy down a rate. Typically, it doesn't make sense to buy down a rate unless you're holding a loan for more than seven years. The reality is most people probably won't hold their loan for seven years. But remember the costs that you have to go through if you want a new loan. You have to pay for escrow and title again. You have to pay those loan fees again. And most importantly, you have to pay for that appraisal again. And since most first-time homebuyers put down a median down payment of just 7%, and most homebuyers who are not first-time homebuyers, so second, third, fourth homebuyers, put down just 13%, it's really important to remember that if you put 5% down and then you want to go refinance with a new 5% down loan, but home values fell 5%, then technically you have zero equity. Now you might not necessarily think that home values have come down 5%, but it's actually not up to you when you're refinancing your home. 
it's up to a third-party chosen appraiser. And if that third-party appraiser is convinced that homes are on a downtrend, they might want to minimize their own liability in appraising properties, being more conservative, therefore, on valuations, meaning even though you bought a place with 5% down, you might not be able to get a refinance appraisal to say you even have any equity in your home. Now, anecdotally, and this anecdotally means from my experience, I find that refinance appraisals almost always come in lower than purchase appraisals. That's because with a purchase, there seems to be this industry push towards getting people into homes, whereas in a refinance, it comes across as a little bit more of like, well, you just want a lower payment or, oh, well, you just want cash out of your property. And so appraisers tend to be even a little bit more fine tooth on refinance appraisals. So I actually really agree with this Bloomberg opinion writer who suggests be careful about thinking you could just refinance in the future because not only are you going to have to pay a lot of fees to refinance in the future, again, escrow title appraisal loan fees, but it also means you're going to be facing tougher appraisals. So those are two reasons right there not to bet on your ability to refinance. So fees, tougher appraisals. But number three, remember, if home values go down, you're screwed. So if you were planning on refinancing, right? You put 5% down and you think you're going to get another 5% down loan. Well, if home values fall, even just 1%, you got to come out of pocket to pay more money towards the value of your home to try to refinance. If you put 20% down and home values fell 5%, you'd have to come up with another 5% in cash, which could be 25 grand on a 500 grand property, plus the fees just to be able to refinance. That's wild. It's not ideal. And since mortgage rates so far have been bouncing around pretty high levels, you gotta ask yourself, what is the likelihood of mortgage rates falling anytime soon? Well, the expectation is that, hey, mortgage rates will obviously plummet as soon as inflation is conquered. But wait a minute, how close are we to actually feeling like we're definitely seeing inflation get conquered? Well, here's a chart of mortgage rates. This chart of mortgage rates shows you that we're not convinced. Obviously, we had a decline in mortgage rates towards the end of 2022 that actually led to some temporary pickup in real estate pricing. You look and talk to a lot of real estate agents today, they'll tell you, hey, January seemed like it was a lot busier than uh, than December or November. Well, yeah, because rates, rates plummeted. They fell to almost under, uh, under 5%. We could just zoom in over here. They fell almost under 5%. Whereas the level where we're sitting right now uh, is closer to this level. Actually, probably 7% is probably somewhere right around here. That's probably right around that 7% level. Let's draw that straight. It's probably right there if we try to get the midpoint between 8 and 6 over here. So we went over 7%, and now we're knocking on the door of 7% again. So the idea that for sure rates are going to be lower is another mistake. So now you've got a few things if you're betting on refinancing, if you're buying a property right now. Uh, number one, fees. Number two, harder refinances. Number three, rates may not come down. And number four, re, uh, uh, you might actually see property values continue to trend down. And in my opinion, that's likely until we are convinced that the fear of real estate is behind us. Consider, for example, when we go over to the Redfin data center. Now, we've talked about this before, but it's worth looking at some of the latest data. So if we go to the Redfin data center, we can kind of see what's going on with median prices in various different counties and also nationwide. Now, it's very important to remember that the big argument that real estate is going to maintain uh, you know, its value right now, the biggest argument right now is that, uh-oh, 
Well, there's so little inventory. Let me strike that. Oh, I've got two of me on screen here. Let me strike that really quick first. It's very difficult at the in the first week of March to talk about how little inventory there is because there's a phenomenon that happens in real estate that most listings expire at the end of the year. So December 31st is when most listings expire. Most listings go on the market springtime, generally around March to May. So the inventory surge is what we're just now walking into. And the Redfin Data Center just updated their uh, pricing on a four-week rolling basis for the nation. And it's actually ticking lower again. Look at this, folks. Let's zoom in over here. So what do we have? We have a 1% increase year-over-year year in pricing at the beginning of the year. And even if this just stayed flat, we've talked about this a million times before, even if we just stayed flat, at 345, let's say we stayed flat at 345. When we get to peak fear, which would be somewhere around, uh, what is this level over here? This is going to be June. We're not actually going to get that data probably until like August because it all lags. But anyway, look at this. You compare 388 pricing to 345, 345 divided by 388, you're looking at an 11% nationwide decline in real estate pricing. Assuming real estate stays flat, and real estate actually started ticking up again here very briefly because rates fell. Uh-oh, but what's happening now? It's actually ticking down. Uh-oh. See, now, if real estate actually continues to trend down as we compare to this hump over here, we could potentially be looking at 15 to 20% price declines nationwide. Now, that is nationwide. There are certain areas that are doing quite well. Tampa, Miami, well, Miami probably, Miami is just killing it. Miami is so far the only place that I've noticed that actually seems to be positive above the peak of last year. And that is potentially explained away by migration. But nationwide, if we look at areas that were pretty hot, like Austin, Texas, or Phoenix, look at that. We're trending down, much like the nation is trending down. Let's go to, let's try San Diego, California. Uh, trying to catch up a little bit, so a little bit mixed over here. I encourage you to use this to, to look at uh, uh, your own particular area. Look at Boise trending down substantially lower than where we are from peak. 547 down to 438, right? I mean, look at that, 438 divided by 547. You're at 20% of a decline. So you're seeing different trends in different areas of the country. Atlanta, I believe, is actually doing pretty well. Uh, a, a lot of the South, uh, let's write it correctly. A lot of the South has been doing very well. See, look at that. You've got a little bit of an uptrend trying to start here. We'll see if that maintains because rates are increasing again. And that could actually drive even Miami and Atlanta down. But most markets as a whole, when we just look at nationwide, we zoom out nationwide, we can see the nationwide trend is down for 2023, continuing the downtrend that we saw of the second half of 2022. And so that's not exactly the best case scenario uh, if somebody's speculating on real estate solely trending up. In fact, Redfin indicates that right now, U.S. home prices are dropping year over year for the first time since 2012. And that's probably because we are at the lowest level of home affordability that we have seen since the great real estate crash of 2008, since basically the housing bubble. The only thing keeping the market up right now 
is inventory. And so if we click on the new listings tab right here, so far we're not seeing a surge of new inventory above previous trend. If anything, inventory is staying stable uh, or, it's, or below trend, I should say. Now, one of the reasons for that are because people have locked in their lower interest rates, right? So they're less motivated to sell and they're more likely to rent than give up their lower interest rates and sell especially since they're more likely to stay in place or remodel than go buy something else and spend a fortune on a, on a mortgage rate that could be twice as high. If you've locked in a 2.8 mortgage rate, why would you go to a 7% now? So really what you're waiting for is potentially that spring surge of inventory and maybe institutional liquidations. For example, I was just in, where was I? I was just in Colorado. I was just in Aurora, Colorado, and I saw multiple listings by Invitation Homes. Uh, showing that Invitation Homes is trying to start liquidating some of their portfolio in certain areas. That's because a lot of real estate investment trusts, like Invitation Homes, are starting to see uh, redemption requests, specifically like KKR, uh, Blackstone, a lot of large companies uh, that, that own residential real estate are facing liquidation requests. And that potentially means these companies have to dump their real estate, and maybe we'll see an increase in inventory. So, the worst case scenario for real estate would be real estate prices stay flat right now, rates stay high, and eventually fear and more inventory drives prices down more. That's the worst case scenario. Certain areas are doing better than others, but that's the way the real estate market works. In fact, people like to say all real estate is local. So you could use things like the Redfin Data Center to see how real estate is doing in your area. But most importantly, it does seem like for an individual there probably are going to be opportunities to take advantage of this real estate market. That's why I have a real estate startup called Househack, which you can learn more about at househack.com. But if you really want to educate yourself on real estate, I encourage checking out via the links down below, the Zero to Millionaire Real Estate Investing Course, which really shows you the path of how to best purchase real estate, in my opinion, to make the most wealth in the fastest way possible, getting below market value deals in real estate uh, uh, single families, multifamily, property management rules that you should follow, how to hire the best agents and property managers, all of that consolidated into one place. Check those out via the links down below. But is it possible that real estate ends up flip-flopping and just recovering from here? Sure. If inventory stays low and we end up in an environment where maybe we are beating inflation and maybe the Federal Reserve can soften their aggressiveness on real estate, yeah. Uh, on, on mortgage rates, then absolutely, absolutely it's possible. The real estate market ends the year positive rather than negative. So we'll have to pay attention both to our local real estate market and the Federal Reserve to know exactly which way things are going. We'll see. Anyway, uh, that's my take on the real estate market and uh, what we can expect going forward for the real estate market, along with the latest updates showing some pain, at least on a nationwide scale, continuing. Okay, that's real estate commentary. Commentary. All right. Oh, man. I wish I wasn't out of coffee. <laughs> Large scale home builders are trash. Ouch. I mean, I don't necessarily think so. Uh, I, I don't think that's necessarily going to be the highest quality home, but uh, probably a lot better than what we've seen in the past. My maybe traffic and drivers probably the worst in the country. Um, okay. I mean, I grew up in South Florida. I guess people get a little aggressive driving. <laughs> I don't know if we could statistically say that. 
rent is too high. My house would rent for 5K. I pay $17.97. You realize what you pay for your home has nothing to do with the rent, right? Like this literally, have, they have nothing to do with each other. FHA can do refis without appraisals, income, or credit. Uh, that's not true. You get what are known as uh, uh, appraisal waivers that are actually driven by algorithms that are based on appraising the value of the home. An appraisal waiver exists because the algorithms are doing an appraisal. So you're basically saying no in-person appraisal, but you're still getting an appraisal. And if the algos are like, oh crap, home values are falling, good luck getting an appraisal waiver. China holds the second most U.S. Treasury bonds, which means even if we ever have an issue with China or they decide to sell back cash, the debt spiral will happen. Dude, China's been like, no, no, just no. Americans hold more Treasury bonds than China holds bonds. And China has been slowly divesting from, China, from United States bonds and debt for a very long time. They've, no, no, no debt spiral. This is uneducated. It's, it's not in, in line with reality. It's not like China can flick a switch and, and uh, have a, make us have some kind of debt spiral. It doesn't work that way. Anyway. What do you think about Section 8 housing as a landlord? Fine. You just have to follow their inspection requirements. Do you ever invest in just land? Good Lord, no. <laughs> the only reason to invest in land is if either you're a farmer or you're a developer. If I was a developer, I'd invest in land, sure. But that's that's not a near-term goal of mine. Maybe in the future I'm do development, but no, I'm not doing that in the long term. Assets might fly short-term, but this bear market is not over until zombie market zombie companies die. The meme stock bust. I don't honestly think this market has any care for what happens to zombie companies. Whether they survive or die does not matter. It literally does not matter if zombie companies survive or die. That is not what the economy cares about. The economy could not give two Fs whether companies that are going to end up going bankrupt go bankrupt today, tomorrow, in a year, or 10 years. The market does not work that way. It does not care about your stupid zombie companies. The market cares about inflation and the recession and how that's going to affect real companies that matter and people and jobs. That's what matters. Not companies that are going to end up going bankrupt. No, nobody cares. And that's like saying the future of our economy is predicated on when is AMC going to go bankrupt? No. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Uh, all right, good. So now let's talk a little bit about, uh, what do we want to talk about here? Let's talk about CPAC. And then we got to go do our Elite Hustlers live stream. All right. So we did real estate here. <laughs> okay. Uh, hold on. Give me, give me one sec. 
Alrighty. Okay, good. So now we're going to talk about Shepak. Shepak. Alright, here we go. The conservative political action conference happened this weekend and Donald Trump apparently is the leader in the CPAC straw polls, taking 62% of the straw poll vote with DeSantis polling just 20%. Now, a lot of folks are arguing that while CPAC was selling Donald Trump shirts and hats, but no DeSantis hats, although DeSantis hasn't announced his candidacy yet, there are a lot of people saying CPAC was really just a MAGA rally. Now, whether or not that's true doesn't really matter. What's worth talking about are some of the things that Donald Trump said so we can talk and add some opinion to some of those items. First, Donald Trump really hit on this idea that it seems like you'll get lynched for doing a great job and that we don't have free speech today and that I am your retribution. Really, Donald Trump opened this idea up that, hey, look, if you want somebody, whether you like me or not, if you want somebody who tells it to you like it is, vote for Donald Trump. That's the argument he's making today. And that free speech is critically important. And I think everybody, I don't think there's really anyone who disagrees that free speech is very important. And this is, of course, what politicians do, right? We're talking basically about things that as many people as possible can agree with. Super, super normal. This idea, though, that Donald Trump will be the retribution of America is one that's essentially suggesting, hey, you know what? If you're pissed off about the economy, if you're pissed off about the way things are under the Biden administration, if you're pissed off about immigration, if you're pissed off at all, vote for Donald Trump. That is the argument that Donald Trump is making. And he goes into some specifics as to what he believes he'll do. This one got particular applause. He's changed from the idea that we're going to, quote unquote, drain the swamp to now what Donald Trump is going to do is totally obliterate the deep state. Now, the deep state and obliterating the deep state is this idea that uh, people who are super wealthy uh, or people associated with, let's say, the World Economic Forum, the military industrial complex, the lobbying industry, basically anybody who tries to control the narrative, runs the media, runs COVID narratives, those sort of deep state individuals will be totally obliterated by Donald Trump. And he says that he wants to do so without destroying social security, including not raising the age for social security or cutting Medicaid. These are arguments he's made. Now, Joe Biden has made the argument as well that we're not going to see any kind of cuts to Social Security. Uh, that is something that uh, Joe Biden uh, had uh, made very clear during the State of the Union because it hasn't been particularly popular uh, an idea of an idea on either side about any kind of limits or restrictions to Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. Uh, then he talks about the largest deportation coming, that countries are basically emptying out their prisons and mental insane asylum individuals, those are words he used, and dumping them into the United States. That is the argument Donald Trump is making, and he's suggesting we're going to have the largest deportation under a new Donald Trump administration ever, a bigly deportation. Now, this is an argument that has been very popular for Donald Trump. Build the wall, build it bigger, finish building the wall. It's an argument that he reiterates here as well. 
But one of the things that I like to mention about immigration is personally, I think we have an immigration shortage and an entitlement excess. So in other words, we have too many people using our social services and not paying into the system. Whether that's people going to the hospital and not actually paying their bills, you literally have hospitals, as reported by the Wall Street Journal, on the border of the United States who are potentially going to go bankrupt because too many people go to the emergency room to seek treatment and they're undocumented and they never pay because they have no money and they have no insurance. So you're bankrupting our services, our social services, because of the illegal immigration that is occurring. And in my opinion, one of the ways to solve this, and it's one that I ran for governor under in California, which is a state that desperately needs to help uh, if there's a state that has more mental problems per politician, it's probably California. And that's because of the lack of money that California invests into mental health education and housing and homelessness care and immigration care. California is a complete failure. They'd rather send fi uh, stimulus checks to people making $500,000. But we don't have to talk about that. I, I, I tried to run for governor. Came in second place. Of retail, recall, uh, recall candidates. Boy, I can't get my words out. It's too early in the morning on a Sunday here, 6.35 a.m. I'm recording this. But anywho, Donald Trump talks about the largest deportation coming. I think one of the things that might be popular to talk about would be the idea that if people can come to America in a streamlined way and support themselves, get a job, uh, work for a company and support themselves without using any social services and actually contribute to our GDP, our taxes, and our economy, then I think it should be a lot easier for people to come to America. I think it should be a lot harder for people who rely on our social services to come to America, but a lot easier for people who don't and actually contribute and pay taxes to come to America. That's my opinion. It's not something we heard from Donald Trump. We just heard about Mass deportation is something that he wants to uh, focus on. He says, we won't give unlimited money to fight foreign wars that are endless wars, stupid wars. Here, Donald Trump is talking about Ukraine. Uh, and some of these arguments are really being made globally. In fact, uh, we went through an entire topic on the channel talking about how really the war between Russia and Ukraine is becoming regionalized, is becoming... Uh, something that the world doesn't see as a World War III threat, but rather as a problem between Ukraine and Russia, and that ultimately will need some kind of negotiated solution rather than endless money from the United States. And in fairness, uh, Donald Trump's not wrong that a lot of money from the United States is going to support Ukraine. In fact, if we hop on over and we look at this particular chart from the Council on Foreign Relations, you can see that U.S. aid to Ukraine far exceeds that from the other top 20 donors far exceeds. We're over $70 billion in aid. The EU in total is setting somewhere around $30 billion. Of course, you could then add in individually Germany, uh, uh, the United Kingdom, uh, Canada, Poland, and such. But it, it doesn't even hold a candle to the amount of money that the United States is throwing to Ukraine without the ability to actually track where our weapons are going that we're sending to the United, uh, or, or to Ukraine, rather. Donald Trump uh, uh, did strike applause uh, for that argument about giving unlimited uh, money to fight foreign wars. Uh, he says, why is NATO not putting up dollar for dollar what the United States is? And he's not wrong. Again, the United States is putting up substantially more money. Now, of course, the argument is made that the United States is the largest economy in the world, and, and maybe there's some form of, therefore, responsibility for the United States to maybe contribute a larger share. But 
boy, oh boy, the U.S. is already doing that an order of magnitude larger than other countries. Uh, Donald Trump goes on to make arguments like uh, there are killings happening in Manhattan like nobody's ever seen before. This is probably not true. Uh, Manhattan's at somewhere around its lowest murder rate since 2019, but that's not to say that the argument of being tough on crime is not popular. I do think it's important to be tough on crime. For example, Walmart is pulling out completely of Portland because it's essentially become lawless in the eyes of Walmart. So much property crime that it's just not profitable to operate Walmarts in Portland because the policies in Portland do not actually respond in a proper manner to prevent crime. It's the same kind of thing that you see in San Francisco or, or in, in uh, countries along the West Coast. And it's a big problem. So he's not wrong about striking that sentiment. Uh, Donald Trump talks about how we lost $85 billion of the greatest military equipment in the world, talking about how much of that is, is really going to uh, uh, Ukraine. Uh, he talks about windmills and how windmills are terrible for green energy. On one hand, he's, he's not wrong in that windmills are a lot uh, uh, more expensive than things like natural gas, solar, or geothermal energy. They are less expensive than nuclear, hydroelectric, and biomass, so they are still a little pricey. So he's not wrong on that. But I think the argument that windmills kill birds is a little silly. Birds are notoriously really stupid in that 900, well, let me put it this way. Every year, windmills kill about 328,000 birds, and I feel bad for those birds. But if 328,000 birds get killed by windmills, then we should also talk about how many birds get killed flying into buildings. I kid you not. They need like a better vision system or like LIDAR or something attached to their heads because they're so stupid. 988 million birds die every year from flying into buildings buildings. Yes, windmills kill 328,000 birds, but 988 million birds die from flying into buildings. So while, well, yes, maybe wind is not, well, well, wind is, is useful in some degrees and it can become cheaper over time. And I'm not a fan of saying don't invest in wind energy by no means. I'm a big fan of eventually going green. I'm a big fan of actually finding the most green energy that we could potentially find. In fact, there are arguments that there are 47 terawatts of heat right below us. Now, when I say right below us, I mean like six miles below us. So we need to come up with new drilling technologies like millimeter wave drilling technology or plasma drilling technology, as well as more advancements coming to well construction to be able to drill uh, six miles down. That's very difficult. But if you can get and tap the super critical steam potential that we have six miles below us, which supercritical steam is about 700 degrees Fahrenheit, about 10 times as strong as the geothermal energy that we use today. Super, super hot steam. You could power the entire world solely with geothermal energy by 2035. You literally have three times the energy potential six miles below us than we use worldwide today. So geothermal, like you want to start looking into maybe potentially like geothermal kind of stocks and investments. I mean, hashtag not personalized financial advice, but let's just say we're going to be doing some geothermal fundamental analysis in the course member live streams. All of you, of course, already know 
is redundant, uh, but it's just worth mentioning in case you're new here that yes, I'm a licensed financial advisor. This is not personalized financial advice though for you. I run an actively managed ETF, I'm a real estate broker. I've got a real estate startup as well. I do a lot of things. And I have courses on building your wealth link down below, including going from zero to millionaire in real estate. That's what I did. Real estate investing, fantastic way to become a millionaire. Stocks and psychology of money, how to make more money as a real estate agent, as a YouTuber, or even just as somebody who has a job in the Elite Hustlers course, uh, or an entrepreneur via the Elite Hustlers group. Uh, those all come with course member live streams, by the way, which I'll be going to the Elite Hustlers live stream after this uh, video. But anyway, uh, Donald Trump, uh, uh, you know, does does uh, make an argument here against windmills. Uh, I do think uh, we should be talking a lot about geothermal energy, and we will be a lot more uh, in the next decade here. So I, I thought it was worth talking about that. I, I'm really, personally, I'm tired of hearing about the bird argument. Let me put it that way. And again, my goal is not to be like super like a Trump apologist and pro-Trump here, and it's not to be super anti-Trump. It's just supposed to be some dude on the internet with a jacket that's way too big, uh, giving you insights and opinions on uh, what's actually going on in the world, using as much data as I could get my hands on. Uh, so another thing that's worth noting is uh, Donald Trump makes this argument that no one has gotten anything from China other than Donald Trump. I think he forgets the fact that we collect about 8 to $14 billion a year in import tariffs from China. But then again, he's trying to reiterate his tough on China argument, which is not necessarily a horrible idea, especially given the uh, uh, data leaks that we regularly have to China, uh, including the theft of some of the most advanced chip making technologies from companies like ASML, the uh, Dutch uh, advanced chip manufacturer, to basically circumvent U.S. sanctions against China and U.S. Uh, export limitations for advanced chips. But that was probably going to happen anyway in the long run. Uh, anywho, so uh, personally, I think that for the Donald Trump uh, CPAC event, I wouldn't be surprised if the polling from CPAC was highly Trump-skewed, given that DeSantis wasn't there, right? Uh, and, uh, and, and, and DeSantis hasn't declared he's running for president yet, although that's widely expected. Uh, it did look like in some CPAC polling that the Democratic contender, uh, that's really expected it from uh, from CPAC uh, estimates is uh, Gavin Newsom being number uh, uh, number one after Joe Biden. Look at that. Dem who do you think the Democratic nominee for president will be in 2024? Joe Biden, 39 percent. Gavin Newsom, 21 percent. Michelle Obama, 14 percent. Kamala Harris, 6 percent. I thought that was really interesting. This idea that uh, uh, you've actually got Michelle Obama and, and Kamala up there. Uh, then you also have, let's see here, This, these were the results here. Who would you most like to be see be the Republican candidate for vice president? I thought this was interesting. You got Ron DeSantis actually coming in at second. And uh, he came in at 14%. Carrie Lake beat him by six percentage points. She was the, uh, obviously, uh, one of the, uh, she was the Republican nominee for uh, Arizona governor. She's been suing like crazy about the election and the rigged election, blah, 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 whatever. Nikki Haley, who has announced a presidential campaign, governor, South Carolina. Nikki Haley, 10%. You got Mike Pompeo and some others over here uh, as potential VP candidates. So CPAC, very interesting. 
I think uh, we're going to see a lot more rhetoric from Trump. I think where Trump could really, uh, like, if I, if, if I was going to give, a, not not that I'm in the position too, but if I was going to argue where Trump has his strongest potential uh, for unity, it's the economy. That's probably where he's going to have the most strength. Now, even though we could say that a lot of inflation impetus came from the uh, during the Trump administration due to bipartisan support for COVID measures, obviously looking back, we printed way too much money. Biden did continue those and potentially made them worse, right? First thing he did was the, the leftover $2,000 stimulus check, which was the extra 1400 bucks. The extension of the child tax credit, uh, part of his policies, the uh, student debt for uh, uh, deferment for as long as it's been going on, right, have all contributed to more inflation. Gavin Newsom sending stimulus checks in October of 2022 all contributed to inflation. So, you know, economic blood is really on both hands. But I, I think it makes it easy for Donald Trump to uh, let people sort of compare the economy then to now. It's sort of a very simplistic uh, an unnuanced argument. That's probably one of his strongest. But I will say a lot of people are pretty surprised by the CPAC poll because people generally have been thinking that DeSantis would cream Donald Trump. That might be the wrong way to think about it. Although there could be a lot more Trump support at CPAC, again, for the reasons that I've already mentioned. Uh, it's very interesting uh, to, see, uh, to, to, to see this information. And, and I think the 2024 election cycle is going to be fascinating. So uh, I'll be covering it. So make sure to subscribe. <laughs> All right, let's do a little bit of commentary and then I got to run. This was a little bit of a long one today. So let's jump into a little bit more commentary. Did the 2018 tax cuts contribute to inflation? Well, that's a really good question. Uh, I mean, they certainly con contributed to uh, uh, more wealth for, for uh, business owners. Uh, I think they hurt real estate landlords a little bit, surprisingly, given Donald Trump. Uh, and, and his involvement in real estate. The doubling of the standard deduction was not the best for incentivizing real estate ownership. Not that we necessarily needed more real estate incentives. I don't know. That's a good question. Hey, Kevin, thanks for providing free content. Always thought-provoking, informative, and intriguing. Common sense isn't biased. Oh, well, thank you for that. I appreciate that. Talk about Tesla. Trump should just skip the elections and go for Insurrection 2.0. Oh, that's rough. I don't think you're going to get many friends saying that. Uh, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe, maybe on one side. I, I, I covered Jan 6. You can see my reaction. It's still live. It was like a 10-hour video. I covered the whole thing. I think what happened on January 6th, whatever you call it, was terrible. And, uh, you know, this is not an argument for or against Donald Trump. I, I just want to make it very clear. I think it was terrible. I just, I don't know. I, I don't want to speculate into what happened before or after all that kind of crap. I just wish that Donald Trump was a lot more aggressive in calling people to stand down faster, sooner, uh, and, and, and uh, ending what the violence that was happening. Uh, and, and so that, that is something that uh, still haunts me, uh, my coverage of January 6th. You can look it up. Just type into YouTube, meet Kevin. Uh, January 6th, uh, riot, I think it was, or insurrection. Or, I, I can't remember what the title was. I'll look really quick. Meet Kevin Insurrection, January 6th, riot. Uh, oh, yeah. Capital riot. Capital riot slash protest slash insurrection. Full live documentary. 
has a million views. I don't know why my thumbnail doesn't load. It's just they blurred my thumbnail. I don't know if like that's YouTube trying to censor it or what. But uh, oh my god, are you serious? YouTube censored it. Sign in to confirm your age. Are you kidding me? Age restricted based on community guidelines. But anyway, yeah, Trump rally, which is how it started. Election certification, lockdown begins, standoff in the House, regaining control, Senate resume, resumes. I covered that whole thing for 10 hours. That's pretty wild. But yeah, I, 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 was, I was very devastated uh, because I think our, whether you're on the left or right, I think our institutions are really important. And that's not to say there isn't corruption or there are problems. Definitely problems. But uh, it, it made me sad. That day made me sad. Uh, so, uh, somebody wants to know where I was born. Yeah, I was born in Germany. For a German, you are scared? I'm scared? Uh, no. Is Kevin Canadian? Eh? <laughs> Twitter blocked Trump from tweeting stand down on Jansen. Well, I believe that. Because, uh, wasn't he banned at that point? Like, I don't think they specifically are like, oh, no, you're not allowed to tweet that. Wasn't he banned at that point? Maybe, maybe, you, I don't know when he was banned. Maybe he got banned afterwards. That's actually interesting. When did Donald Trump get banned from Twitter? Obviously, he's not banned anymore right now. He doesn't use it because he uses Truth Social. Oh, he got banned on Jan 8th. Oh, that's interesting. That was two days later. Oh, I would have to look into that. I mean, I don't know if that's true, what you're saying, but that's interesting. Blocked. Well... There was a woman who was wrongfully murdered on Jan 6. That's really touchy. That's really, really touchy. I, I remember when that happened. I remember the shots fired. I, I remember how devastating that was. I remember the footage of it. You know, her climbing through the barricaded window of the door uh, with an officer holding that door at gunpoint. Uh, yeah, I remember that very clearly. Anyway, all right. I think uh, I think it's time for me to go to my Elite Hustlers live stream. So thank you very much for being here. I've got to run. Appreciate y'all. See you in the next one. Goodbye.